Chapter forty eight, part two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty eight, part two. While these confidences were interchanged between Tom Pinch and Mark, Martin and John Westlock were very differently engaged. They were no sooner left alone than Martin said, with an effort he could not disguise, "'Mr. Westlock, we have met only once before, but you have known Tom a long while, and that seems to render you familiar to me. I cannot talk freely with you on any subject unless I relieve my mind of what oppresses it just now.' I see with pain that you so far mistrust me that you think me likely to impose on Tom's regardlessness of himself, or on his kind nature, or some of his good qualities. I had no intention, replied John, of conveying any such impression to you, and am exceedingly sorry to have done so. But you entertain it, said Martin. You ask me so pointedly and directly, returned the other, that I cannot deny the having accustomed myself to regard you as one who— not in wantonness, but in mere thoughtlessness of character, did not sufficiently consider his nature, and did not quite treat it as it deserves to be treated. It is much easier to slight than to appreciate Tom Pinch. This was not said warmly, but was energetically spoken, too, for there was no subject in the world but one on which the speaker felt so strongly. "'I grew into the knowledge of Tom,' he pursued, "'as I grew towards manhood,' and I have learned to love him as something infinitely better than myself. I did not think that you understood him when we met before. I did not think that you greatly cared to understand him. The instances of this which I observed in you were, like my opportunities for observation, very trivial, and were very harmless, I dare say. But they were not agreeable to me, and they forced themselves upon me, for I was not upon the watch for them, believe me. "'You will say,' added John, with a smile, as he subsided into more of his accustomed manner, "'that I am not by any means agreeable to you. "'I can only assure you in reply that I would not have originated this topic on any account.' "'I originated it,' said Martin, "'and so far from having any complaint to make against you, "'highly esteem the friendship you entertain for Tom, and the very many proofs you have given him of it. "'Why should I endeavour to conceal from you?' He coloured deeply, though." that I neither understood him nor cared to understand him when I was his companion, and that I am very truly sorry for it now. It was so sincerely said, at once so modestly and manfully, that John offered him his hand as if he had not done so before, and Martin, giving his in the same open spirit, all constraint between the young men vanished. "'Now pray,' said John, "'when I tire your patience very much in what I am going to say, "'Recollect that it has an end to it, and that the end is the point of the story.' With this preface he related all the circumstances connected with his having presided over the illness and slow recovery of the patient at the bull, and tacked on to the skirts of that narrative Tom's own account of the business on the wharf. Martin was not a little puzzled when he came to an end, for the two stories seemed to have no connection with each other, and to leave him, as the phrase is, all abroad.' "'If you will excuse me for one moment,' said John, rising, "'I will beg you almost immediately to come into the next room.' Upon that he left Martin to himself, in a state of considerable astonishment, 
and soon came back again to fulfil his promise. Accompanying him into the next room, Martin found there a third person, no doubt the stranger of whom his host had spoken when Tom Pinch introduced him. He was a young man with deep black hair and eyes. He was gaunt and pale, and evidently had not long recovered from a severe illness. He stood as Martin entered, but sat again at John's desire. His eyes were cast downward, and but for one glance at them both, half in humiliation and half in entreaty, he kept them so, and sat quite still and silent. "'This person's name is Lucem,' said John Westlock, whom I have mentioned to you as having been seized with an illness at the inn near here, and undergone so much. He has had a very hard time of it ever since he began to recover, but as you see he is now doing well.' As he did not move or speak, and John Westlock made a pause, Martin, not knowing what to say, said that he was glad to hear it. "'The short statement that I wish you to hear from his own lips, Mr. Chuzzlewit,' John pursued, looking attentively at him, and not at Martin, "'he made to me for the first time yesterday, and repeated to me this morning, without the least variation of any essential particular. I have already told you that he informed me, before he was removed from the inn, that he had a secret to disclose to me which lay heavy on his mind. But fluctuating between sickness and health, and between his desire to relieve himself of it, and his dread of involving himself by revealing it, he has, until yesterday, avoided the disclosure. I never pressed him for it, having no idea of its weight or import, or of my right to do so, until within a few days past, when understanding from him, on his own voluntary avowal, in a letter from the country, that it related to a person whose name was Jonas Chuzzlewit, and thinking that it might throw some light on that little mystery which made Tom anxious now and then, I urged the point upon him and heard his statement, as you will now, from his own lips. It is due to him to say that in the apprehension of death he committed it to writing some time since, and folded it in a sealed paper addressed to me, which he could not resolve, however, to place of his own act in my hands. He has the paper in his breast, I believe, at this moment. The young man touched it hastily, in corroboration of the fact. "'It will be well to leave that in our charge, perhaps,' said John, "'but do not mind it now.' As he said this, he held up his hand to bespeak Martin's attention. It was already fixed upon the man before him, who, after a short silence, said, in a low, weak, hollow voice, "'What relation was Mr. Anthony Chuzzlewit, who—' "'Who died?' "'To me?' said Martin. "'He was my grandfather's brother. "'I fear he was made away with, murdered.' "'My God!' said Martin. "'By whom?' "'The young man, Lucem, looked up in his face, "'and casting down his eyes again replied, "'I fear by me.' "'By you?' cried Martin. "'Not by my act, but I fear by my means.' "'Speak out,' said Martin, "'and speak the truth.' I fear this is the truth. Martin was about to interrupt him again, but John Westlock, saying softly, let him tell his story in his own way. Lucem went on thus. I have been bred a surgeon, and for the last few years have served a general practitioner in the city as his assistant. While I was in his employment, I became acquainted with Jonas Chuzzlewit. He is the principal in this deed. What do you mean? demanded Martin sternly. "'Do you know he is the son of the old man of whom you have spoken?' "'I do,' he answered. 
He remained silent for some moments, when he resumed at the point where he had left off. "'I have reason to know it, for I have often heard him wish his old father dead, and complain of his being wearisome to him, and a drag upon him. He was in the habit of doing so, at a place of meeting we had, three or four of us, at night. There was no good in the place, you may suppose, when you hear that he was the chief of the party. I wish I had died myself and never seen it.' He stopped again, and again resumed as before. We met to drink and game, not for large sums, but for sums that were large to us. He generally won. Whether or no, he lent money at interest to those who lost, and in this way, though I think we all secretly hated him, he came to be the master of us. To propitiate him, we made a jest of his father. It began with his debtors. I was one, and we used to toast a quicker journey to the old man, and a swift inheritance to the young one. He paused again. One night he came there, in a very bad humour. He had been greatly tried, he said, by the old man that day. He and I were alone together, and he angrily told me that the old man was in his second childhood, that he was weak, imbecile, and drivelling, as unbearable to himself as he was to other people and that it would be a charity to put him out of the way. He swore that he had often thought of mixing something with the stuff he took for his cough, which should help him to die easily. People were sometimes smothered who were bitten by mad dogs, he said, and why not help these lingering old men out of their troubles, too? He looked full at me as he said so, and I looked full at him, but it went no farther that night. He stopped once more, and was silent for so long an interval that John Westlock said, "'Go on.' Martin had never removed his eyes from his face, but was so absorbed in horror and astonishment that he could not speak. It may have been a week after that, or it may have been less or more. The matter was in my mind all the time, but I cannot recollect the time, as I should any other period, when he spoke to me again. We were alone then, too, being there before the usual hour of assembling. There was no appointment between us, but I think I went there to meet him, and I know he came there to meet me. He was there first. He was reading a newspaper when I went in, and nodded to me without looking up or leaving off reading. I sat down opposite and close to him. He said immediately that he wanted me to get him some of two sorts of drugs, one that was instantaneous in its effect, of which he wanted very little, one that was slow and not suspicious in appearance, of which he wanted more. While he was speaking to me, he still read the newspaper. He said drugs, and never used any other word. Neither did I. "'This all agrees with what I have heard before,' observed John Westlock. I asked him what he wanted the drugs for. He said for no harm, to physic cats. What did it matter to me? I was going out to a distant colony. I had recently got the appointment, which, as Mr. Westlock knows— I have since lost by my sickness, and which was my only hope of salvation from ruin. And what did it matter to me? He could get them without my aid at half a hundred places, but not so easily as he could get them of me. This was true. He might not want them at all, he said, and he had no present idea of using them, but he wished to have them by him. All this time he still read the newspaper. We talked about the price— he was to forgive me a small debt, I was quite in his power, and to pay me five pounds, and there the matter dropped through others coming in. 
but next night, under exactly similar circumstances, I gave him the drugs, on his saying I was a fool to think that he should ever use them for any harm, and he gave me the money. We have never met since. I only know that the poor old father died soon afterwards, just as he would have died from this cause, and that I have undergone and suffer now intolerable misery. Nothing, he added, stretching out his hands, can paint my misery. It is well deserved, but nothing can paint it. With that he hung his head and said no more. Wasted and wretched, he was not a creature upon whom to heap reproaches that were unavailing. Let him remain at hand, said Martin, turning from him, but out of sight in heaven's name. He will remain here, John whispered. Come with me. Softly turning the key upon him as they went out, he conducted Martin into the adjoining room in which they had been before. Martin was so amazed, so shocked and confounded by what he had heard, that it was some time before he could reduce it to any order in his mind, or could sufficiently comprehend the bearing of one part upon another, to take in all the details at one view. When he, at length, had the whole narrative clearly before him, John Westlock went on to point out the great probability of the guilt of Jonas being known to other people, who traded in it for their own benefit, and who were by such means able to exert that control over him which Tom Pinch had accidentally witnessed and unconsciously assisted. This appeared so plain that they agreed upon it without difficulty, but instead of deriving the least assistance from this source, they found that it embarrassed them the more. They knew nothing of the real parties who possessed this power. The only person before them was Tom's landlord. They had no right to question Tom's landlord, even if they could find him, which, according to Tom's account, it would not be easy to do. And granting that they did question him, and he answered, which was taking a good deal for granted, he had only to say, with reference to the adventure on the wharf, that he had been sent from such and such a place to summon Jonas back on urgent business, and there was an end of it. Besides, there was a great difficulty and responsibility of moving at all in the matter. Lucem's story might be false. In his wretched state it might be greatly heightened by a diseased brain, or admitting it to be entirely true, the old man might have died a natural death. Mr. Pecksniff had been there at the time, as Tom immediately remembered, when he came back in the afternoon and shared their counsels, and there had been no secrecy about it. Martin's grandfather was of right the person to decide upon the course that should be taken, but to get at his views would be impossible, for Mr. Pecksniff's views were certain to be his, and the nature of Mr. Pecksniff's views in reference to his own son-in-law might be easily reckoned upon. Apart from these considerations, Martin could not endure the thought of seeming to grasp at this unnatural charge against his relative, and using it as a stepping-stone to his grandfather's favour but that he would seem to do so if he presented himself before his grandfather in Mr. Pecksniff's house again, for the purpose of declaring it, and that Mr. Pecksniff, of all men, would represent his conduct in that despicable light he perfectly well knew. On the other hand, to be in possession of such a statement, and take no measures of further inquiry in reference to it, was tantamount to being a partner in the guilt it professed to disclose. In a word, they were wholly unable to discover any outlet from this maze of difficulty, which did not lie through some perplexed and entangled thicket. And although Mr. Tapley was promptly taken into their confidence, and the fertile imagination of that gentleman suggested many bold expedients, which, to do him justice, he was quite ready to carry into instant operation on his own personal responsibility, still, 
Bating the general zeal of Mr. Tapley's nature, nothing was made particularly clearer by these offers of service. It was in this position of affairs that Tom's account of the strange behaviour of the decayed clerk on the night of the tea-party became of great moment, and finally convinced them that to arrive at a more accurate knowledge of the workings of that old man's mind and memory would be to take a most important stride in their pursuit of the truth. So, having first satisfied themselves that no communication had ever taken place between Lucem and Mr. Chuffey, which would have accounted at once for any suspicions the latter might entertain, they unanimously resolved that the old clerk was the man they wanted. But, like the unanimous resolution of a public meeting, which will oftentimes declare that this or that grievance is not to be borne a moment longer, which is nevertheless borne for a century or two afterwards without any modification, they only reached in this the conclusion that they were all of one mind, for it was one thing to want Mr. Chuffey, and another thing to get at him, and to do that without alarming him, or without alarming Jonas, or without being discomfited by the difficulty of striking, in an instrument so out of tune and so unused, the note they sought, was an end as far from their reach as ever. The question then became, who, of those about the old clerk, had had most influence with him that night? Tom said his young mistress clearly, but Tom and all of them shrunk from the thought of entrapping her and making her the innocent means of bringing retribution on her cruel husband. Was there nobody else? Why, yes. In a very different way, Tom said, he was influenced by Mrs. Gamp, the nurse, who had once had the control of him, as he understood, for some time. They caught at this immediately. Here was a new way out, developed in a quarter until then overlooked. John Westlock knew Mrs. Gamp. He had given her employment. He was acquainted with her place of residence, for that good lady had obligingly furnished him at parting with a pack of her professional cards for general distribution. It was decided that Mrs. Gamp should be approached with caution, but approached without delay, and that the depths of that discreet matron's knowledge of Mr. Chuffey, and means of bringing them, or one of them, into communication with him, should be carefully sounded." On this service, Martin and John Westlock determined to proceed that night, waiting on Mrs. Gamp first at her lodgings, and taking their chance of finding her in the repose of private life, or of having to seek her out elsewhere in the exercise of her professional duties. Tom returned home, that he might lose no opportunity of having an interview with Nadgett, by being absent in the event of his reappearance, and Mr. Tapley remained, by his own particular desire, for the time being, in Furnival's Inn to look after Lucem, who might safely have been left to himself, however, for any thought he seemed to entertain of giving them the slip. Before they parted on their several errands, they caused him to read aloud, in the presence of them all, the paper which he had about him, and the declaration he had attached to it, which was to the effect that he had written it voluntarily, in the fear of death and in the torture of his mind, and when he had done so they all signed it, and taking it from him of his free will, locked it in a place of safety. Martin also wrote, by John's advice, a letter to the trustees of the famous grammar school, boldly claiming the successful design as his, and charging Mr. Pecksniff with the fraud he had committed. In this proceeding also John was hotly interested, observing, with his usual irreverence, that Mr. Pecksniff had been a successful rascal all his life through, and that it would be a lasting source of happiness to him, John, if he could help to do him justice in the smallest particular. A busy day, but Martin had no lodgings yet, so when these matters were disposed of, he 
he excused himself from dining with John Westlock, and was fain to wander out alone and look for some. He succeeded, after great trouble, in engaging two garrets for himself and Mark, situated in a court in the Strand, not far from Temple Bar. Their luggage, which was waiting for them at a coach-office, he conveyed to this new place of refuge, and it was with a glow of satisfaction, which, as a selfish man, he never could have known, and never had, that thinking how much pains and trouble he had saved Mark, and how pleased and astonished Mark would be, he afterwards walked up and down in the temple, eating a meat-pie for his dinner. End of chapter 48